Yes, so we're so excited about all that God is doing uh, in the life of our church. Dr. Han Oh, uh, often leading up here in worship, he's actually preaching in the sanctuary right now. Uh, he's part of our teaching team, just incredible gifts, and we're so grateful to have Gay Arbuckle with us today. Uh, just so good to worship the Lord. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Gay. It's been amazing. So it has been an incredible season. And a lot of us, uh, a lot of you have told me how much you've enjoyed this series of messages. You know, back last year, I thought, here's what we need coming into the new year. It's not so much five steps to, you know, a better you or 10 steps toward your best life now in the new normal. But instead, what we really need is a clearer vision of who God is. And, and rediscover the God of the Bible that, that is presented to us in Jesus and to worship him. So we've had a great time uh, just going through this whole series. It was based in part on the, uh, the premise that uh, A.W. Tozer is the one in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, by the way, that our team has read and many of you, some of our leaders are reading. I challenge you to read it. It's a, it's a short dense, okay, book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It's on our website there. You can find it with our sermon guide. Um, and and it, there's all kinds of resources around this whole series for teenagers, for children, for, for all of us, for you to really dive in deeper. So, um, but he said, he's the one who said, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Uh, we could sit there for a while and think through that and talk about it. But I believe that's uh, clearly true. And so we've been talking about different attributes of God. And uh, today we're going to talk about a particular, what I might call kind of a primal core attribute of God. I wonder if I were to ask you the question, what might be his core uh, attribute or quality? If I were to say, or just in a word, how would you answer that? God is what? God is holy. What else? Love. Okay. If you're like me, probably love, I'd probably come to that. A lot of people, God is love. In fact, if you look at scripture, it says in 1 John 4, 9, John says, the beloved disciple says, hey, anyone who does not love doesn't know God. Because if you know him, you're going to love like him because God, what does he say? God is love. Now, it's, we need to understand though, there's a little nuance here. Love is not God. God is not equal to love. Love is not equal to God. Someone said holy because, listen, uh, last week we talked about the central attribute, if you will, quality of God uh, that permeates all of his attributes. But you can say this about all of his attributes. We've said that God is he's not in parts. He's, he's Trinitarian, but he is, he is he's all of his attributes that none of them contradict any of the others. So he's loving in all of his ways, but we said his holiness is what separates him from everything else, to be set apart, to be holy. His love is holy. His power is holy. It's other than us. So kind of uh, as we dive into this, we're going to talk about his love today. And as we think about it, it's important to note his love is holy. So watch this. His love is separate. It's not like our love. And I say this because some people have just come to believe, well, God is love. He's this, you know, this out there love, force of love. So we got to love everybody, and, and which often means let's don't speak the truth to each other. Let's don't hurt anybody because love doesn't do that. We just love. And they're, you know, like it's just whatever, anything goes, let's just be loving. We see this in our culture today, do we not? Where there, it's just like, okay, anybody who speaks any truth about something, that's unloving. And we need to talk about that today. We're going to jump into this. Tozer writes this. Love is only 
If love is only God, then God is only equal to love. This is an important little nuance here. Not so little. A delineation. And God and love are identical. Thus, we destroy the concept of personality in God and deny outright all of his attributes save one. And that one we substitute for God. Okay, And that God is not the God of Israel, not the God of the Bible, not the God that's revealed in Jesus, who we have seen clearly what God is like and what love looks like. I say this because many of his attributes, okay, coming together, make many of us think, and people in the world think, God is not loving. If we bring these things together, what do you do with God's love and his discipline? God's love and his judgments, God's love and his wrath. What do you do? Watch this. What's up down with hell? How can a loving God, is the question, often send people to hell? I'm going to talk about that today. And so we're going to look at Exodus 33 and go ahead and turn there because I want you to see that God is a God of love and he's a God of wrath. And we're going to talk about wrath. I want to, I'll unpack that before we get to the text, in fact. But while you're turning to Exodus 33 there at home, and in a bit, we're going to land this whole thing with the Lord's Supper today. And so if you haven't yet um, got your elements there at home, juice and some crackers, you can grab those and be ready for it. Um, I want you to see today, out of this passage we're going to look at in a moment, God's love is preemptive. Okay, if you're taking notes, here we go. God's love is prescriptive and God's love is predictive. All right, so three simple kind of outline, but we're going to dive deep into this. So I want you to really listen. I believe, I truly believe you listen to the sermon, you apply it to your life. It'll change your life. It'll change the way you approach God. I don't think you can understand God's love without understanding his wrath. And to understand what I'm going to share today in about 30 minutes, it'll change your life if you apply this to your life. And, And so here's what I want us to be clear about. Um, God's wrath is not him just going off, like getting angry. This is what people think wrath is. Like God just loses control and he just wipes out people. That is not the wrath of God. God is always in control. Again, his anger is not like ours. That is not the wrath of God. Okay, wrath is God's holy reaction to sin. I could say it this way in our context today. Wrath is God's loving response to sin. Author Tim Challies, he writes this. I like this. It is God's voluntary gag reflex. Had anything that destroys his good creation, that makes him sick, right? God is against sin because he's for us. Because he loves us. And he will vent his fury on everything that damages us. Okay, so because he's perfect love, he hates everything that's not love. And let's be clear about this. God is all loving, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't hate things. He has a holy hatred. In fact, there's a passage in Proverbs 6. It's interesting where it says, uh, the writer says, hey, here's six six things God hates. No, there's seven. Seven things God hates. And real explicitly, here's what he hates, if you want to look at that later on. But we see this throughout the Bible. His, His wrath is a strong, vengeful indignation. In fact, in Nahum chapter one, verse two, it says this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord is, listen to this, takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
And when's the last time you heard Nahum quoted in a sermon, right? Maybe because of that. We, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to talk about his judgment. And, and, and I, I mean, admittedly, I just want to talk about his love. But listen, this is not an Old Testament thing either. Some people want to say, well, I'm glad, you know, Jesus came along. And then, wow, now God's loving. But before him, whew, it was rough. No, no, no. God doesn't change. He's immutable, right? And so what we see in the New Testament, Romans 1, 8, for instance, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness for men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's something about receiving truth that preemptively allows us not to receive God's wrath. And this is in the here and now. He's talking about right now. God is all loving and especially, I could say, in his discipline, in his judgment. Say it this way, his wrath is loving. And we're gonna see how this works today because just because he's all loving doesn't mean he loves everything and he has a holy hatred against anything that comes against us. So in Exodus 33, to place it in context, all right, because we don't just pull it out, Moses has led the people out of Israel. Uh, God's called him out. We looked at that passage of his calling not too long ago. Chapter 14, he, he calls the people out of Israel. They, they, they go, they're set free after hundreds of years of slavery. And then uh, in chapter 20, he receives the Ten Commandments. And it's there then God is, and there's a lot of, lot of kind of marriage language that you, that's used in the covenant where God is entering into covenant, loving covenant with his people. And so he gives the 10 commandments and then he comes down. And by the way, they are to be a separate people. That's what the commandment, the covenant's all about. To be a holy, separate, set aside people like us. People look at us and go, you're a little weird. Yeah, I hope in all the right ways because, of, because we're pointing you to God. And he's different. My life is different as a result. I'm holy. I'm set apart for his purposes. That was the whole point with Israel, right? And so he comes down from the mountain. And do you know what happens? So from, from Exodus 20 up to this passage that we're looking at, um, there's this uh, reiteration of the law, really details of the law so that they'll be set apart. Do this and you'll be different from the rest of the world and you'll live life as I've created you to live. And so he comes down from the mountain, Moses with his 10 commandments, and they're worshiping a golden calf. The first commandment of all, no other gods before me. Moses comes down, he goes, what? And he throws the, I'm guessing he said, what? And he throws the commandments down. He's just out of anger, it says. Some commentators have noted, he's like, they can't even, we can't even follow the first one. There's no way, you know, as if like, God, there's, we can't do this. And yet he's just angry. And, and we can't believe the people have already turned from God. And so now what's the response? Well, God's wrath, if you will, his discipline. He says, I'm going to blot you out. Literally, I'm going to write you out of my book. I'm going to write you off. And then Moses intercedes. And then God says, okay, look, I'm going to, you're going to lead the people out. You're going to lead some of the people out. There's a whole generation. Here's what's going to happen. Not going to make it to the promised land. And then it says, here it is in verse 14. And he, okay, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I love this. You could translate that almost, uh, I will give you success. I, I love this. And then, then Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Friends, this is a great prayer that I pray all the time. And when, when in my own life and, and, and here as, as your pastor, I'm like, Lord, and you know, a group of leaders or we're praying through direction. Lord, if you don't know, if you're not in this, don't lead us. Don't, if you're not in this, don't let us go there. 
Because we don't want to go where you're not going to take us or where you're not going to be. And yes, he's everywhere. But this is a great prayer for you to pray this week. Lord, if you're not in this, please stop. Stop me. Because I don't want to go anywhere where you're not with me. And then God says, I promised you I would be with you. In fact, I found favor in you. You have found favor in my sight. And then Moses, as if he's, I got this sense of, I found favor? Yeah, really? Like, you're still with me? Okay, so, so then look at what he does. Moses said, so, so please show me your glory. Show me your glory. You know, and I have this sense, I mean, God is not like me so much, but God is almost like, hey, bro, ease up. Okay, no, not that, no. No, 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 you know, not that awesome. Like you can't know. And so here's what happens. A glory, you know, is the expression of his, of his character, his holiness. And we've noted that glory, okay, the weight literally is the word. The weight of his glory would kill any of us if we were to stand face to face with it. And that's what Moses is saying. The Hebrew idiom is, I want to see you face to face. I want to see your face. And then God says, okay, that's a dangerous, bold and wonderful request. And so he says in verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Okay, Yahweh is the name there. And I will be gracious to whom, catch this, I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. So he offers this wonderful gift to Moses. He's going he's gonna to offer his, his presence. But the thing I want you to really see here, we're going to continue the story. The first thing I want you to see is that God's love is preemptive. Okay? He says, I'll be gracious. I mean, he's the one. God is the initiator here. Don't miss this. From way back. Okay, how about back to creation? But back calling out Moses. And it's true in your life as well. God makes the first move. Always, not us. I could say it's one-way love. But preemptive love is a love that actually sees something, gets ahead of something. Okay, it, it forestalls something. It obstructs something. It stands in the way. A preemptive move, like a preemptive strike, right, is when you're coming at uh, and an enemy that may attack is disabling the enemy ahead of time. God's love is preemptive. His love is stepping into something that's coming. And that something is the wrath of God. And so his love is preemptive. He steps in and he says, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll love whom I will love. I'm going to step in because I've decided to love you. In Deuteronomy 7, y'all, there's a passage there that's really interesting. You can see it there. Uh, he's talking about how he chose God's people. Maybe you've seen this. He says, I chose you. For, for you're my people, holy, there it is again, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession. Out of all the people on the face of the earth. And then it's like, hey, why did God choose Israel? He tells us why. Not because you were more in number, okay, than all the other people, your small group, uh, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of peoples, but because the Lord loves you. Is why he loves you. You see, been keeping, he's keeping his oath before you. He's keeping his, he swore to your fathers. He's gonna, he brought you out of Egypt. He's redeemed you from the house of slavery, which was under the, the hand of the Pharaoh, the king. He's saying, why did I choose you? Because I chose you. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. Why did he choose you? Because he chose you. Friends, don't miss this. 
I mean, I, I mean, I think all of us kind of get into, well, no, because I like, I mean, I, come on, I step, I came into this. Aren't you, I bring something to the table, right? I mean, in our, even in our sinful state, I think it's like, it's a law of reciprocity. I, I did something, right? No, you did nothing. I said, yes, you did that. But his preemptive move was to you first. And he chose you and he loves you. You need to hear that today, friends. His love is unconditional, right? His love is completely unconditional. But but God, like you're glad I'm on my team. Like I'm on your team, right? Aren't you? Okay, I'll give you that. But no, I don't need you. I love you. And I like you, by the way. And some of us need to get our heads around that too. God doesn't love you because you're useful to him. He doesn't love you because, well, you had your quiet time last week, almost every day, or you, had, you prayed to him. He loves you because he loves you. And that love should then guide us to respond to him in the same way that Moses does in his life throughout. He's back and forth, but he's obeying God, and God calls us to love him. And look at verse 21. God says, you you can't see my face and live. And in verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. So he's got this little cleft in the rock. My glory will pass by. I'll put you in the cleft, a little spot there. And I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you're going to see my back, but you will not see my face. Now, all of this is God is revealing his glory, but he's not showing him full on like like face glory. You can't see it all. And it's a loving, protective move. I'm, I will hide. I'm put my hand there. You, you know, I won't kill you, but you're going to get to see enough of me, if you will. And then the God of second chances shows up. Look at chapter 34, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. He's destroyed them, right? And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first one. So I'm not making up new ones. <laughs> Coming back. Okay, the ones that you broke, by the way. Be ready by the morning and come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there on top of the mountain. This is, a, this is the God of the second chance. He comes back and says, let's do this again. We're going to try this again because I am faithful and true. Look at verse three. Now, no one shall come up. So he's going to, he tells him, gives him even clearer instructions this time. Come off by yourself. I don't even want flocks or herds up there. I'm nothing up there. This is a holy moment. So Moses cuts out two tablets of stone. He goes early in the morning up Mount Sinai and just as the Lord commanded him with the two tablets. So what is going on here? What is happening here? Why are these commandments so important? You say, well, they're the Ten Commandments. No, no, no. Why did God give such explicit commandments? Because watch this. His love is preemptive. He moves first, but his love is prescriptive. Okay? His love is prescribed. It is established. It is spelled out. It is authoritative. And here's my point. All of God's commands are loving. Every command that God brings to us, all of his judgments are loving. All of his discipline in your life, consequences of your sin. And some of us have faced some severe consequences for our sin. If we would attach it to our sin. A lot of us are going through trouble right now, but we're not realizing. It's because I'm being disobedient to God. And we think, well, because he doesn't love me. No, no, he loves you. And his commands are good for for you. David says in Psalm 119. Verse 47, for I find, he says this over and over again, but he says here, I find my delights in your commands, which I love. Let me ask you today, do you love God's commands? Do you really love his commands? I'm talking about the ones you don't want to hear. 
Do you truly love, Lord, I love your command. I love that you tell me to be quick to listen and slow to speak. I love that you tell me to be slow to anger. I love that you tell me that because I need to hear that, Lord. I love that you tell me it's better to give away. I don't fully understand. I don't understand. But I love that you tell me to give instead of receive. I love that. I love that you tell me to live a life of self-sacrifice and to die to myself before my spouse or my friends or my roommate. I love that you tell me don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. I love that you tell me that. I love these commands. I love that you tell me don't enter into sexual impurity because you want me to live a happy and healthy life free. You want me to not to enter into sexual relations outside of marriage or to live a pure life. I love your commands. I love your commands. Can you say that to God today? That you love his commands because his love, his love is revealed through his commands. I was talking to a teenager who, who, who said, Jeff, I wish my parents would put boundaries around me. I wish my parents cared where I was at midnight. I mean, I'm, you know, he's a good kid. Like, I'm pretty trustworthy, but he understood that if my parents really loved me, they would be telling me, putting boundaries around me and telling me how to live and discipline me when I mess up. Hebrews 12, 6, it says, for the, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives or daughter. See, he says, this is the sign you belong to me. This is proof that you're one of his children. God's discipline is an element of his wrath. His hatred for sin, right? Proverbs 3, 12, it says this. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Think about this. When you read scripture, how many commands are in scripture? They're all over scripture. I mean, you know, laws or precepts throughout the Bible. But when we're confronted with our sin in our culture, we don't want, even me, we, I, all of us, I don't want to hear Certain things. I don't want to obey that in my sinful state. I don't want to obey all of his laws, all these commands. I don't want to live a life like that. And we see this in our relationships. We see it in our culture, our twisted culture. We don't want to hear the truth, right? And what happens is truth often sounds like hate to people who hate the truth. Truth sounds like something, you know, that's not loving if you don't want to hear the truth, right? This happens for kids who don't want to hear from their parents. I mean, but it'd be hateful not to confront people with the truth if it's a loving thing to do because it's going to help them, right? It'd be hateful for me to want to be loved more, you know, and have the approval of this than to speak the truth. I have a good friend who would often say, hey, Jeff, you want me to be uh, nice or you want me to be honest? What, what do you want? And it's always honest, right? I mean, there's this, uh, I mean, be nice, but come on, bring it to me. You know, I want to hear this. Proverbs 27, five and six, it says this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Where do you need to apply this in your life? Maybe it's as a parent with your children. Maybe it's children hearing from parents that your commands and your rules are good for me. I'll embrace these because you love me. Tim Keller puts it this way. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws, right? That's not love. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. That's why in parenting or in any relationship, rules without relationship breed rebellion. 
because we don't want to hear it from somebody who doesn't love us, right? But God's love has this thing of radical commitment to us out of his love and a radical devotion to truth. This is what we see in Jesus. I'd say it this way. Behind every precept, there is a principle. And behind every principle, there's a person. Capital P. Here's how you unpack what we call the negative commands in scripture. This is, I just want to teach on this for just a moment. This is so important. Thou shalt not. Okay. We hear that and we go, oh gosh, God is always, he's always the rule maker. He's always telling me what to do. Or maybe you feel that way with the truth that comes to you from a friend or a parent or a loving person in your life. But here's what happens behind every, let's, you could do it with every command. It's real simple to do it like with the 10 commandments. Okay. But get into this habit. Behind all of his commands is a loving person who is the most loving person in the universe. So when God says, don't murder, that's a command. Behind it, there's a principle. What's the principle? Don't murder. Sanctity of life. Sanctity of all of life. Okay, behind that is a person, the the giver of all life, the lover of all life, the sustainer of life. You see how that plays out? I mean, again, we could go back to, how about, okay, don't have sex outside of marriage, all right? Uh, or, or as a single person, live a life of sexual purity before God. Okay, well, don't have sex, okay, before, outside of marriage. Um, okay, behind that is, wait, what? there's a principle. What is that? Uh, a life of purity before God and covenantal love, okay? And behind that, there's a person. Wait, who's that? The God of covenantal love. The God who says, I'm enough for you. I, I, you. Marry me. Find all that you need and can find in me. You see how this plays out. You can do it with every command. And so we see that this, and this is a really good thing for parents, listen, to know. Behind, and for children, behind every negative command, there are always two positive reasons. To protect and provide. Protection provision protect us from something and provide something better you can do that with every negative command it's a great exercise I challenge you to do it with your kids okay back to the story look at look at verse five the lord descended a cloud here it is and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the lord the lord passed before him and proclaimed the lord okay yahweh yahweh a God merciful and gracious. I want you to hear this language. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is after they've turned from him. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Look at this. His love and wrath. Meet together as he calls us to live for him. And he says, I love you. I chose you. But here's what's going to happen if you don't follow these loving commands. His love is preemptive, right? His love is prescriptive. And finally, his love is predictive. You want to predict your future? God is always just. He's always right. He's always true. He's immutable. And so his command, he says, do this and here's what will happen. You'll face consequences for your sin. Always. You never sin in a vacuum. Private sin is, private sin in my life, your life impacts everybody around me. You never sin in private. It always impacts your life. And and, and every, every time we sin, it impacts our lives in some way. And the ultimate 
predictor of whether or not we live a life of joy and into eternity is what we do with Jesus Christ. People ask me, Jeff, how in the world can a loving God send people to hell? The quick answer is God doesn't send anyone to hell. In fact, it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, he, he wishes for none to perish. And yet free love is chosen love. And he gives us choice. Everyone who goes to hell chooses to be there. And you say, who would choose hell? Anyone who would refuse God. Anyone who would seek to live a self-righteous life, self-focused life. I can get there myself, whatever there, whatever there is for me. I will live for me. I will stay that way. Let me ask you, do you have you ever met a self-centered, self-focused, completely self-centered person who is filled with joy? Never. That's hell. And that's hell that gets worse and worse. C.S. Lewis said it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously, then not says, he flips it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek will find. Those who knock, it is open. Hell is a choice we receive by not choosing God. You want to live that way? Here we go. It's living as your own God forever. That's hell. A self-centered life. And hell isn't, is not the default. You choose hell by rejecting God. It's not imposed on people by a God of violence. Like he's up there, you're in, you're out. Like he takes pleasure in that. God wants everyone to, to turn to him. And, and people say, well, gosh, but Jeff, that's so exclusive. Like you're saying, Jesus really is the only way that's so exclusive. Listen, everybody is exclusive. Don't let people come at you as a, as a Christian, if you're a believer, don't let them come at you with that. No, everybody's exclusive. Oh, well, I don't, I don't like hell. I think that's the God I believe in. Whoa, 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 whoa. When you, the God... God, I would never, whoa, don't go there unless you're going to show me scripture, right? And, and so what happens is um, we think, God, that's, that's just so, you mean people are going to go to hell? because That's so exclusive. Now, I'll tell you what's exclusive. For you to think that you're going to be self-righteous enough, good enough. You're going to be the one to call the rules. Okay, no hell. What You make up the rules. You tell us how to live. You be your own God. You talk about exclusive. That is exclusive. To be the God of the universe. And yet God himself tells us, no, no, you come to me. But here's the deal. Listen, I believe in hell because Jesus believed in hell. I mean, primarily, Matthew 25, 41, among other places, he said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So you could argue that it wasn't even prepared for people. Now these images, though, I want to say this, of fire and gnashing of teeth and all that kind of stuff, um, those, I believe, are mostly metaphorical, okay? And some people hear that and you go, oh, good. Wow, that's terrible, man. Like eternal fire. That's, gosh, no, no, no. Watch. The realities that these metaphors in scripture point to are always worse than the metaphor. And they're always better 
on the other side. Heaven, streets of gold. That's amazing. No, it's better. You see. And so eternal separation from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. His love is predictive. It seals our redemption. It's a guarantee. It's why in Ephesians 1, 13, 14, I love this. Look at this. In him you also, when you heard the, the word of the truth, word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is where all this is going. Sinners like me, saved by Jesus, transformed by his love, pointing to the glory of God. Why were we saved? Well, because we were awesome. God wanted us on his team. No, to the glory of God is why you've been saved. To his glory, to show the world and all of eternity that he is a glorious God. And look at what he does to people like me. He changes us and he turns us into people that love him. And so Romans 5, 6, it says, for while we were still weak, watch this, preemptive love. Preemptive, he steps in at the right time. He steps in. Christ died for the ungodly, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Preemptive move on his part, the death of Jesus on the cross. And then in verse 9, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God that is to come. His holy reaction to sin. So on the cross, Jesus becomes the object of God's holiness, uh, uh, his, his reaction to sin. And watch this, on the cross, God's truth, his love, his, his grace for us, and his wrath collide in Jesus Christ. And he makes salvation possible for all of us. You want to predict your future? Receive Christ today if you have not done so. And if you have, and you can rejoice in me, Remember the Holy Spirit in you, the conviction of sin, all that you face, the discipline that comes to us is out of, out of, from the hands and the heart of a loving God that seals, that seals your salvation and is proof that you've been saved. And it's through Christ and his sacrificial love on the cross. It says in Romans, 10, uh, Romans 5, 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more? Now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, his resurrected life in us, an ultimate resurrection as we follow him in a procession of eternal life in him, those of us who have said yes to him. And you say, well, what about people who've never heard? They're going to be judged based on the light that they were given, but God has told us to go and tell the world so that they can join us who are saved. Listen, his love is preemptive. His love is prescriptive. Jesus showed us how to live. Self-sacrifice, denial, death, enemy love. And his love is predictive. And we can rejoice in the certainty of our salvation, sealed by the Holy Spirit in us. Moses was unable to see the glory of God face to face. But like the old hymn writer wrote, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. And he covered me there with his hand. Christ took upon himself 
the wrath of God so that we could be set free. And so what I want us to do is pray right now. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. It's just a sweet time to stop and remember his great love for us. But if you're listening to me, maybe in this room or watching online, if you've never received Christ, friend, this is not something to take lightly. You've got to be certain that you are on the right side of eternity by receiving Christ, the only way to heaven, the only way to life. He died on the cross for you. And now, right now, right now, say, Lord, I don't want to face your wrath. I don't want to be the object of your holy anger towards sin. I want you to remove sin from my life, to forgive me, to make me righteous by covering me with the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe. I give you my life. Save me, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We are in awe of your love. It awes us today that we can call you Father. And so now use this time as we reflect, as we remember, as we take. In Jesus' name, amen.